What's up, everybody? You're listening to World's Your Oyster, and this is your host, Paula Sanders. And we are here for another exciting episode of the show. And, you know, I've been having a little bit of a difficult time doing these intros by myself. So you're going to have to bear with me while I get through this awkward stage and I figure out what I want to do with the pearl in your oyster when I'm by myself. And as I promise, I will be bringing in co-hosts from time to time, but there are some episodes where I feel that it's most appropriate and best for me to just do it by myself. This week is one of them because it's somebody that is kind of a new friend in my world, but it's somebody that I have really looked up to over the last six months since I started on this podcast journey. Um, She's somebody that I really admire and is someone that I think is doing incredible things in the podcasting space. But most importantly, she showed me that you can have a serious career, pivot, and then also have a very serious podcast and treat that just as you would your regular job. So I'm so excited to share this story with you. But before we get to that, why don't we get into the pearl of your oyster? Pearls of our oysters this week. You want to hear the pearl of my oyster? Is that the pearl in your oyster? Yeah, let's make it that. Oh <laughs> my god! Okay. Dun, 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 dun. The pearl in my oyster this week. As I spoke about on last episode, um, I did an event in the Hamptons. It was my first time hosting an event, and it went off without a hitch. It was absolutely amazing, and. This week, I'm just operating from a space of the utmost gratitude because I had so many friends show up for me in the middle of the week, all the way out in East Hampton at 5 o'clock p.m., and it really just showed me that I have been able to assemble an incredible community of people. And I guess it, um, I don't know, it took me doing this event to see that and to realize that, and I am just so happy that I did it because I think as we get older, you know, relationships are really hard and you don't know how invested everybody is in each relationship until they have to show up for you. And I'm just so happy that I wasn't disappointed and that I have friends. (laughs) I know that that sounds silly, but um, truly, I had such an amazing weekend, not just at the event, but I was able to spend time with a lot of people that I really love and people that honestly I admire and I'm so grateful to have them in, grateful to have them in my life. So if you showed up on Thursday for me or if I saw you over the weekend, just know that I really love you. I value our friendship so much and I just can't wait to continue being friends with you. I know that sounds silly, but it's true. And that's just the way that I feel. So that's the pearl of my oyster this week. I am feeling so much love and I'm just above all things, feeling so grateful for my friends and my family um, and all the beautiful things that are happening in my life in this very moment. All right, let's get to the episode. Bye-bye. Emily Tish Sussman is a dynamic and influential figure in the world of politics, podcasting, and women's empowerment. Emily is a force to be reckoned with, leaving an incredible mark on the political landscape through her astute commentary, strategic insights, and commitment to progressive change. As the host of the award-winning podcast, She Pivots, she shares the stories of remarkable women who have successfully navigated career transitions, redefining their own ideas of success. But 
Emily's journey goes far beyond her role as a podcast host. With an extensive background in politics and advocacy, she has established herself as a leading democratic political strategist, making over 250 appearances on major news outlets such as MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, HLN, and CBS. Her expertise and perspectives have been sought after by reputable publications like the New York Times, Newsweek, Politico, and more. Prior to launching She Pivots, Emily made waves as the host of the highly acclaimed podcast, Your Political Playlist. With her skilled interview style approach, she guided listeners through the intricacy of politics, sitting down with influential figures at the seat of power and activism, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Stacey Abrams, and Hillary Clinton. And now she's sitting down with me. Beyond the world of podcasting, Emily has championed women's rights and played integral roles in various organizations and initiatives. She helped shape the foundation principles for the historic Women's March in 2017, created a nationwide surrogate program for Democratic candidates, and served as a senior advisor for paid leave, advocating for policies that support families and businesses. Join us as we delve into a conversation that explores not only Emily's exceptional career, but also her insights on pivoting, politics, and the power of women's voices. I was so inspired by this conversation, and I'm so excited to introduce you. All right, Emily, welcome to Worlds Your Oyster. Thank you. How do you do your show? Do you want me to look at the camera or look at you? You know, it's it's interesting. I tell people to just try to remember to look out, but they always look at me because I'm so beautiful. I no. know, and engaging. <laughs> just do your best to try to look at the camera, but it's all good. Okay, we'll do a little back and forth without making it nauseating. Well, this is so exciting. I'm very happy to have you on the show. I've been listening to your podcast ever since I knew that you had a podcast. I mean, this was like six months ago, I think, when we first connected. And now we're here together. So it feels good. I'm happy we got a time to hang out beforehand, get yes. to know each other. Thank you so much for having me, where I had to get myself together because I am a sweaty mess from the subway. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> we're coordinating as well. We did not plan this. So I think it's like, I think maybe we're soul sisters. Exactly. It's, it's a Bashar <laughs> for sure. Exactly. See, I was all nervous. And now I'm like, no, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We're in there. But seriously, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're very busy and I'm so proud of you and all the success that you've had on this new venture. And uh, I'm excited to, to learn a little bit more about you. And I think because your show, She Pivots, is all about the pivots and redefining success in your eyes. And I would love to hear about your pivot. Well, my pivot has been, I guess we can probably get into more of the details later. Kind exactly. of the top line here is that I spent about 15 years as a political strategist working in Washington and working on federal campaigns. And it was grueling. It was exhilarating. I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I was very good at it. And then I ended up getting pregnant very quickly mm -hmm. after I got married. So it was a big surprise to me. Like, it wasn't like I was making this choice to go right. into motherhood. It was a big surprise. And then Surprise number two and three is that I got pregnant immediately afterwards again. So I ended up having three kids in three years, which is tough for anyone. And if you're in a high intensity, high stakes job, it's impossible. Yeah. My whole sense of self and identity was tied to being not just professionally successful, but politically professionally successful. And it disappeared. Like it all disappeared. Yeah. So when we went into the lockdown in 2020, I had just had the third baby. So my kids at that point were two, three, and three weeks. And 
my whole idea of going to go work on the 2020 presidential was all, I had it mapped out. I knew how I was going to do it, but it was all predicated on having childcare, right. which evaporated. And it wasn't just that I couldn't work on the election that I, in the way that I wanted to. Like, really, my whole sense of identity was crushed. And I needed to know that I was going to be able to come out of this somehow, like mm. that I wasn't just kind of like dead and gone forever. <laughs> and I felt like I needed, I needed to hear stories of women who had come out of things that, had been, that were externalities to them. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't this like, work, life, balance, mommyhood. Like that wasn't it for me. It was like, I needed to know that something, maybe it was kids, but maybe it was something else. You needed to be inspired in a way. I definitely needed Mm -hmm. to be inspired. And I thought, how do I get women to tell me these stories? Like women that I respect, well, I'll put them on a podcast. And that's how She Pivots came about. I decided on this very specific format that I wanted women who had had some level of success. So we're we're not talking about newbies, like some career. Um, went through something outside of themselves and then changed their perspective. And they found something different, something better than they could have had before and found success in it. Um, So we decided on that very specific format. I pitched the show to Marie Claire. So we are now the official podcast of Marie Claire and have been able, I mean, the topic's resonating. Like people are thinking about this a lot. So we've had incredible guests on the show. We've had Vice President Kamala Harris, Mm -hmm. Priyanka Chopra, New Real Housewife, Erin Leachy today. <laughs> like, we've really run the gamut of guests. Um, and it's been a great experience and very gratifying. Yeah, it's so incredible. And I think I actually talk a lot about pivoting on this show as well because we're all constantly in movement. We're all constantly going, going, and, and changing. And I think that so many of us, and I don't know if this happens to men. I actually don't talk to a lot of men about this, but we are all us women, we do become wrapped up in our careers and in our jobs. It becomes a huge part of us. And I think now more than ever, jobs that you have are a little bit more receptive to you kind of digging into those other passions that you have. And now when you were working in politics, you were using your voice all the time. You were constantly on TV and, you know, doing all of those things. So how did you take the skill sets that you learned in all of those years while you were doing the media and the press and transferred those over into a podcast? It's actually quite a different skill set. Yeah. It's honestly pretty different. So the background is that I started going on TV, on cable news as a political strategist uh, in Barack Obama's reelection. So in 2012, they started having me on. My first segment was on Fox News. They started bringing me back. So I was on TV as a political commentator for about 10 years, sometimes every day. I watched some I of it. <laughs> I was impressed. I'm like, damn, she is fiery. <laughs> Like, you know how to use that voice, girl. We brought it, you know? We like to bring it. But, you know, so I was on Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, CBS, ABC, um, sometimes every day in election years, but definitely a couple times a week. And it was so different. Like, that was a skill set that I had to learn how to do. Like, I had to learn how to deliver my points in five to seven minute segments. One of the things they teach you in cable news is that you actually can't move your head or your eyes. Stop. Yeah. So I'm going to try to do I it now. I was like going to say, I'm going to try to Looking do that at for this the camera, rest of the Try doing it. So if you have to, if you, the way we naturally speak is we like move our eyes around. Like we get thoughts that way. We move our head, we move our hands. So try to come up with thoughts. No. When you can't move your head and you can't move your eyes. I can't do it. It's Yeah. No, it's very <laughs> unnatural. But that, I got really good at that. Yeah. And you know, sort of like speaking in sound bites. Like those were, th- I got good at delivering my points and always coming back to the main point I was trying to make. 
Did you get like trained for this? Because I feel like this is something that you would need some training on. No, 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 okay. Okay. no. I had done it for, um, I had done it for about three years before I ever did my first media training. And I went to it and they flipped me out. And I had like a nervous breakdown. Cause I was like, you're telling me to unlearn the things that I'm clearly doing okay. Cause I'm getting right, booked I'm bu- all the I'm time. Booked, yeah. And it ended up being probably a good thing that I got some new skills out of it. And you know, we always have things to learn, but I was like flipped out. So I did the political commentary for years. And then once I started doing podcasting, I started with a political podcast yes. in 2018. It was called Your Political Playlist. And the idea came from the place that I had been working at the intersection of politics and media for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I had worked for the largest progressive think tank in Washington. And so we had all these brainiacs coming up with data and big ideas. And my job was to try, I had different pieces, but a piece of my job was to try to get it delivered to regular people. Humanize it. Humanize it. Mm -hmm. We had no effective, effective distribution to get to regular people. And I always felt that we were constrained. Our messages were constrained. Like even trying to humanize it, it was too wonky. Like it just wasn't connecting. Yeah which was a huge point of frustration for me. So I felt like if I'm going out on my own, starting my, having my own platform and creating it the way I want to create it, I want it to be normal, like the way you would actually talk to your friends. <laughs> that was, that's, that's been a big driving factor for me. So even going from like political commentary in the think tank to the political podcast, that was kind of unlearning what I knew. Ah, okay. And then making this progression into personal stories. Like I really thought that, nobody wanted to hear my personal opinion, like my actual life and like things that are like, I I just thought it was all policy. Like I didn't know if there was appetite for me to talk about anything personal and anything that wasn't policy related. Well, that's all we want to hear. And we also want to like, so for somebody like me who, you know, I don't come from a political background, we never talked about politics in my home, you know, politics for me is completely overwhelming. And it's something that I feel like I'm so far behind that there's no point of me even trying to catch up because I just, none of it makes sense to me. Like when people break it down and make it, okay, I can get behind that. I can get behind that. But when I open up the news or open up, you know, Instagram and I see these things, even some of the things that you were speaking about that I was watching videos, I'm like, I have no idea what she's talking about. So I'm going to stay away from politics on this interview because like, we, I don't even know. But like, we, we want to hear those, the, the humanized version of these stories. So I think that that concept is actually a really fantastic one. When you start your media uh, conglomerate, you should bring that one back. There's a big disconnect. If you work in Washington, if you work in policy, even at, at any level, that there's a climate of intellect. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there, it's, it's very highly valued. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we live in New York now and there's a big value here placed on hustle and a big value placed on individuality. Those aren't big values if you work in policy and if you work in Washington. The thing that is valued is intellect. Right. And so like this idea that I had, even when I was still in politics of trying to make things accessible to regular people is actually not a very highly valued thing Mm -hmm. if you work in it because you want your ideas to go higher and higher and higher. Like you want them to be in Congress. You want them to go into law. You want them to be in colleges taught. Kind of simplifying it and making accessible is actually not a very highly valued thing once you're in the system. Mm -hmm. That was really frustrating to me and I had to actually physically move out of Washington to be able to start doing it effectively. Right. So now how long did you have that show? The political show I had for uh, two or three years. Okay. Before the kids. 
In the middle of the kids. In the middle of the kids. Yeah, so I had my first kid uh, five days. So I went to the Democratic convention in 2020, or in 2016 when Hillary Clinton took the nomination. Five days later, I was on CNN and I had a baby that day. No. <laughs> I went right back on TV four weeks after I had him and I would bring him, because it was an election year. So I was on TV all the time. So I bring the baby nurse in the green room with my hair and makeup on. And I would nurse right before I went on so I didn't like leak milk when I was on air. <laughs> Gotta love it. <laughs> um, my first day back from maternity leave was the Monday after Trump had won the election. Oh, good so Lord. I mean, I worked for the think tank that was called the Clinton White House in waiting. People literally had jobs going into the Clinton White House that yep. no longer existed. Yeah, of course. Um, but I came back with this like new mom determination that I was like, I'm going to be the same worker. People are going to see that I'm not diminished. I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. So mm -hmm. I was super focused in a way that everybody I think actually wasn't able to be because they were just living. emotionally and emotionally wrecked after. I mean, people were just walking around crying. They yeah. didn't even show up for work. Like there was no work to do because no one knew what they were supposed I to do. I remember going. I went to work that day and my colleagues were crying. Like yeah. they were just so upset. The subway that day. That was the freakiest day ever. The subway. You could hear a pin drop in the subway because everyone was just solemn. And nobody saw it coming. It was just no. shock. Shock. So that, I mean, that's also the context of me becoming a mother yeah. and like becoming a parent. Like mm. I, when I think about the transition to becoming a parent and what that's meant for my career, it is totally linked to the Trump presidency and the loss of the Clinton presidency because that is the entire context for how I've known how to become a parent and how I balanced, like staying home and being with my kid was not an option for me internally right. because there was such a bigger context in which to go back to work. Like we couldn't- Because you thought you were winning. I thought we were winning, but also like when I went back to the office, like after we'd actually lost the election, like we had to refocus. We had to think about how do we not lose all the progress we had made during the Obama administration? Right. How do we make sure the Affordable Care Act isn't repealed? How do we make sure marriage equality isn't repealed? How do we make sure Roe v. Wade isn't overturned, right? Like those were all things that like, the stakes were high. And we're right back there. And we're right back there. <laughs> you know, the, but the stakes were high going into it. So it was like, oh, I'm a little tired. My baby doesn't sleep. Like, oh, I want to like take a nap when he's napping. I mean, the, the, that felt ridiculous mm. when the stakes were that high. Yeah, because everything that you're dealing with in your life is so much bigger than being tired. And so it just, it didn't feel like an option. And then I got pregnant basically immediately again. Like only when he was eight months old. I got pregnant again. And by the way, I was like pretty sick during my pregnancies. So yeah. I, I mean, I was just a giant mess. <laughs> I don't know how you women do it, by the way. Oh so God. kudos to major claps. I mean, I, it's, it's, I, I just got an, it is 2023. I'm like, how is there not an easier way? Truly. I mean, we could get everything on Amazon. Why can't I order my baby there? <laughs> oh my God. I know. I know. And I didn't start taking the morning sickness medicine until my third pregnancy. And I was like, what was I, didn't I even know that doing? Yeah. Why was I like toughing this out? Yeah. So I'm like people, they want to give, uh, give birth about the drugs. I'm like, why? Why? I just like- One of the most important op-eds I've ever read in my life was right before I had my first baby. It was in the New York Times and it was called Get the Epidural. Get the epidural. <laughs> and it said- I don't know why we've glorified this idea that women should have a, quote, natural birth experience. Once men start having, quote, natural root canals, that's what I'll consider it. Unbelievable. I love that. Love. I was like, <laughs> yes, queen. This yes. is the inspiration I needed. <laughs> yes. Hey, my pearls. Since you're listening to this show, I would assume that you are into all things self-betterment. And what is better than being healthy? which is why we've partnered with E-Functional. 
eFunctional is an online healthcare marketplace designed to meet the needs of today's busy and health-conscious consumers. With eFunctional, you gain access to fully certified, state-of-the-art laboratories right from your own home. Their partnership with top-notch laboratories allow them to offer a wide range of at-home laboratory tests from wellness and sexual health to food sensitivities and more. eFunctional is your trusted partner for accessible, accurate, and affordable healthcare testing. Visit their website at www.efunctional.com for more information and use our code OYSTA20, that's O-Y-S-T-A-20, for 20% off at checkout. And now you have no excuse to get your diagnostics on. You'll thank us later. So you then move back to New York, and that's when you decide you're going to start She Pivots. Uh, it was uh, we're approximately then. So we left Washington because we were kind of done. My husband was in the Army and then worked in national security. Wow, um, and we were just sort of done in Washington, and we thought we'd move back to New York City, where I'm from, where we'd be with family. Um, had the third baby and went into a lockdown pretty much immediately. So we right. only lived in New York for four months. And we just, like, picked up with the weekend versus stuff and moved out of the city. We ended up moving eight times in 18 months. So we were just like walking around with like fresh direct bags full of toys, <laughs> essentially, is how we moved. And with three babies under three years old. Yeah, one of them was four months. Um, Where were you going? <laughs> we were just like, we don't know what our life is. Um, and it was in that, it was like right in the middle of that, that I kind of came up with the idea of She Pivots. And by came up with the idea, I mean, oh my God, please somebody give me advice and give me inspiration. And it was only honestly once we bought a house and felt moderately settled, Mm -hmm. that I was like, okay, now I can think about what is the product. Right. Like, I know that I need inspiration because I feel like dead and gone. If I'm going to create something that feels valuable to me and I think could be valuable to others, now I'm ready to think about what form it takes. Mm -hmm. And what a great time, right? Because during COVID, everybody was pivoting. Everybody lost their jobs or was furloughed or was now had this extra time because they were working from home to explore these little nooks and crannies of their passion. So what a perfect time to kind of start this thing, to share these stories of other people who have pivoted in maybe not so crazy times to inspire other people. And now that you're two seasons in, how do you define success for yourself through this journey? I'm constantly redefining it. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas I was very clear about what success looks like for me in my political career, like it was compensation, it was access to power, it was job title, it was team. That's all different for me now. Yep. And now I think the biggest piece of defining success for me is being able to control my own time. Like I care about picking up and dropping off my kids from school almost more than anything else. I don't always put them to bed. Right. Like other people care about that. That's right. not the biggest thing for me. By then, I'm spent and they're making me crazy. But, but you, know, you want to hear how their day was. You want to send them off and see, you know, maybe what they're looking forward to for the day. I mean, those are yeah. precious moments that I actually remember with my parents is to and from school. Yeah, you know, I think when they would ask me what I learned that day and I would always say nothing. And my mom would say, you can't say nothing, you know, and then I'd have to think of something. But those are the things that you remember when you're an adult and they're so precious. Yeah, it's important It goes to fast. Me. Yeah, it's important to me to be there at their processing time. Mm-hmm. Whether they're like get processing themselves getting ready for school or coming home and being there to talk about it, that's important to me. And it's important to me that I put something out that is meaningful into the world. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like I spent my career thinking that legislative change is the thing that I put out into the world. And now that isn't accessible to me. That is, I cannot work in that same way. 
And so now I think of culture change through storytelling as the thing that I'm putting out into the world. And I do it by being here, mm-hmm. you know, being transparent about how a lot of this stuff was really hard yep. and I had to rethink it. And I do it by telling other women's stories on She Pivots. Yeah. And that was going to be my next question is, what do you hope that you are putting out there into the world and how do you hope that you're inspiring people through these stories? Well, I think that our generation of women grew up being told and believing that we could really do anything professionally mm-hmm. and we do believe it. Yeah. And we should. Absolutely. The thing that we that didn't change is that we didn't do the corollary with men. We didn't tell men that they also have to be as big a role in the home, in caregiving, mm. in responsibility. And so what's ended up happening to our generation as we're getting to caregiving both younger and older, mm. because a lot of people of our generation are taking care of their, their parents, parents. Mm-hmm. In, in various forms, um, is that it's all coming to us. And even if, and I'm being very, um, very traditional gendered here, obviously there's variations, but I'm sort of speaking in generalities. I think it does apply to a lot of people, whether they're married or not. But I think particularly in like in cis opposite sex couples that the women believe they can do everything professionally and they should do everything. And they still have just as many responsibilities as if they didn't. Yeah, of course. And that I think is leading to a lot of the pivots because we don't see a way to have happiness in that. Like how can you feel fulfilled and successful in any level if you're supposed to be 100% everywhere you go and the prettiest and the smartest and the this and the that the list goes on and on it's like completely overwhelming and the thinnest by the the way like this I think is is a big piece also that is another place where like I talk about it very openly is that I've lost 140 pounds over the last couple of years what yeah 140 pounds? Yeah. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> okay, this was not part of the interview, but I, I want to hear this. Yeah, I mean, you know, do, being all of those things and working in all of those things, it was very depressing for me when I got pregnant and I was being physically held back from being able to work the way I knew that I could. Like mm-hmm. my brain wasn't operating. I was tired. I was, by the way, I was not just morning sick. I was all day sick. Right. So I was nauseous all the time. And I was emotionally eating because I was like, this can't, this isn't me. Right. So I gained a lot of weight, almost a hundred pounds of my first pregnancy. And you're on air through through this whole thing. I'm on air through the entire thing. I'm getting comments. I mean, I always got hate mail, but I'm getting comments from people who had seen me across, you know, saying like, you look disgusting. And then I eventually had a producer say to my agent, we actually can't keep putting Emily on unless she cleans up her look a little bit more. Because I was just like letting, like I was just a mess. Like I looked like a mess. I was like letting everything go. Nobody cared that you were pregnant. You were like. It was after I had had the baby, but yes. Okay, I was just sort of like, I I didn't have clothes that fit me correctly. They didn't look right on air because I didn't want to spend money. Right, I was going to say, well, then give me more budget. Yeah, like I didn't want (laughs) to spend money on clothes because I couldn't accept that I was going to look like this forever. It was a temporary thing for you. It was a temporary thing, but I didn't look appropriate um, because my clothes weren't fitting me right. And I, I wasn't happy, but also like I didn't have the time or energy to be thinking about how much energy it would take to plan out my meals to actually lose weight. Breastfeeding kept the weight on, did not take it off because I was hungry all the time. And I, I mean, I was, all of my extra energy was going into either put in the same hours I had at the office before that or take care of the baby. And so I felt like if I put meaningful time and energy out in a day to trying to lose weight, it felt way too selfish to me. 
Mm. And it would wow. detract okay. from either being a good parent or being a good worker. So I kept the weight on, got pregnant immediately again, gained even more weight, mm-hmm. and then had pretty much lost most of it before I got pregnant the third time. But then I had to lose it again. Like right. I gained it back again. Not all, not all 100 pounds, but I gained probably 40 or 50 pounds. Um, and then, I, and then uh, when she was coming up on about a year, like nine months or 10 months, I was like, okay. It's time. I cannot. And by the way, my career had disintegrated at this point. Like this is coinciding in COVID. So I was like, well, I can't use the excuse that I'm working too much to right. actually focus on this. I have no career to speak of. <laughs> I might as well. But you had the chops to do something. Like, I, I know you did. <laughs> I might as well actually use that energy to get back to feeling healthy and being the person that I was before. So and what so, did you do? I've always been a vegetarian. I okay. started following this diet from the 1970s, the Pritikin diet. Okay. And it totally worked for me. I like front load. I mean, it basically, like I did, yes, I got back into fitness, but I had a lot of health problems from having free pregnancies back to back. So it wasn't like I could go into like high intensity workouts. Like I had to walk. Yeah. Like I literally couldn't, I had a herniated disc from labor. Like I literally couldn't get up off the ground. Yeah. So I had to start slow. I had to cut oil basically out of my meal. Like I front load all of my meals with raw and steamed vegetables. This would be a nightmare for me. I mean, I love vegetables. So like I, basically I found the diet that works for me. Yeah. Like I love vegetables, so it really works. And now I just, like, I don't mind eating this way. I like it, actually. Yeah. I feel very clean. I was gonna say, and how do you feel mentally though? Now, do you feel comfortable in your body, the way that you look now? Everything feels right Yeah, this track. is like the first time that I feel comfortable in seven years. Yeah because I felt like I was in somebody else's body for a long time. And so it was hard to really project a lot of confidence Mm -hmm. when my career was falling apart. I didn't necessarily want these kids and I didn't feel connected to them when they were babies. That's another piece of it is that I've never felt connected to little kids. Like I do feel connected to my kids now, but I didn't when they were young. And I felt like I was in another person's body. So it all sort of fell apart at the same time. And now I feel like I'm in my own body. Like I feel good. I feel confident. Now I think that you really are working in this sphere of like the social zeitgeist, right? You're interviewing people like Brooke Shields and Priyanka Chopra and uh, who is that I listened to the other day? Gina Rosero, you know, which, you know, these people are, are mega icons in, in the industries that they serve. And it's so different from what you're are so comfortable with talking about. So how are you finding your way in, I mean, you're very relatable as it is, but how are you finding your way through these conversations that aren't so politically charged? Well, we, I try to follow, like I really let the guest lead yeah. in what is important to them. And I think that does get people to a, a place of comfort mm-hmm. because I'm not trying to impose any narrative on them. No. Um, I really do say like, whatever is important to you, is the way that I want to tell your story. Totally. And so I think that that does help get them comfortable. But no, this is a very different skill set than when I worked in Washington and I was like, here's facts A, B, and C. Yeah. Here's proof points. But I do come back to the fact that like there are certain, when I look at the season as a whole, when I'm planning out, there's some stories that I really want to tell Mm -hmm. because they're important right now and they're in the national debate and there aren't enough personal stories to make these stories relatable. So like Gina Rosaro, who you who you mentioned, um, is a trans model. Yep. So she was a model, she was Miss Filipino, and only at the height of her career decided to come out as trans. There's a big debate happening right now in the country around trans identity. And it's very, un, it's like very disassociated from like people's actual identities and like who they are. Yeah. 
So that was important to me this season that we told totally. one or more trans stories. My first not- guess was trans, actually. And that it's to me so was important. the most important story to tell. So that's why I put it first. And she's also a beautiful person and somebody that I love so much. And that and that is it. That is at the crux of why we're all doing this, right? We all want to tell these people's stories and give them a platform, even though they all have tremendous platforms. But people want to touch other people and they want to tell their stories. That's what I think is so beautiful about podcasting is that they get this opportunity. You know, when we're on Instagram or TikTok or whatever mediums you like to use, you know, you have maybe... 15, 30 seconds. And also like, we always just assume that people know our entire stories because they follow us on Instagram. But the truth is, is I actually found, and this is kind of why I started my show is because I had all these incredible friends that have these big, beautiful lives. And I was too shy to ask them, Hey, how'd you get that? How'd you get there? You know, why, you know, and I'm not a shy person, but it's like, well, we're friends. So I can't really like ask them like, where'd you go to school? You know, like, so that's why I started the show was so that I can get these people on my couch and and understand what was your process? How did you get there? What are the tools that you use? How can we transfer these tools and, and, you know, things and ideas and processes that you use to other people. So it's, uh, it's, it's so lovely. And I've, I've so in really like, I've enjoyed your show a lot. What has been your favorite story to tell so far on the show? One of the episodes from our first season, the first one that I recorded, actually, her name is Paula Nira. She's not a well-known figure. Mm-hmm. She is, uh, an executive at Johns Hopkins hospital, mm-hmm. started her career as a Uh, a Navy officer. Wow. As a male Navy officer. And she came out as trans and it ended her Navy career. Interestingly, she deployed in the 90s while she was going through her transition. Paula was one of the women who inspired me, honestly, to think about this format of the show. I used to work with her, so I've known her for a long time. Mm -hmm. And she is such an inspiration to me. And the way that she tells her story, it comes across that she is... She is a Navy veteran first. Like, she is committed to her country first. She is probably in her early 60s now, and she cannot talk about leaving the Navy without crying. Because it's her whole identity. It's her whole identity. And one of the most important things in her life was that she was able to get her Navy discharge papers, paperwork changed just in the last couple of years to change her identity from Paul as she was discharged to Paula as she lives now. And the reason that's important to her is so that she can be buried with the name Paula. And I am crying at talking about it because we just don't think about it. Like no. it's not in this 10,000 foot conversation about who trans people are. Like we don't think like her, yes, it's important to her that she is a woman and she is a trans woman, but it's actually really important to her that she's a Navy veteran, probably more so. Well, think about that, right? You're struggling with your identity the entire time when you're a trans person. And then you have the one thing that you are sure of, 100% sure of, which is that you are in the Navy, taken away from you because of a gender issue. Yeah. She knew it was ending her career. She actually got the assignment that she had, she'd always wanted to be a pilot. And she actually got into flight school on her third try. And she declined it because she knew she would have to stop her treatments and she would have to go back to living as a man. And that I mean, she can't talk about that decision without crying. And so being able to have that conversation with Paula in such a raw way and knowing that we were giving it the audience that it deserves um, was just so incredibly gratifying. But 
you know, being able to have these conversations, you know, not just with friends that I am able to probe more yeah. than I ever thought <laughs> that I could, but having conversations with women, like with my idols, you know, I was able to interview Vice President Kamala Harris live on stage. I never could have done that had I worked, had I still been working in politics. Right. And I was able to ask her personal questions and get her like candid response. And that also was incredibly gratifying, not just because we can give it life, but it was validating to me as an interviewer. Like, 100%. I can, like, oh, I can kind of do this, yes, you know? Yes, you can. <laughs> I'm. So how did you feel on that day? That had to have been to be live in front of, was it your first live podcast? Or? Uh, my second, I had interviewed, I had just done the first live podcast with Stacey London from What Not To Wear. Okay, she's also so cool. I know so her. Cool. Yeah, she's so cool. <laughs> she's been like a longtime idol of mine. So like, were the emotions high? Like, how do you prepare for something like that? I mean, it came on fast and furious. Okay. I had been pitching, you know, I have connections to the White House and the comms office because I worked with a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. So I had had a request in for the vice president for like a year. Okay. And then it was nine o'clock on a Wednesday and the vice president comms director texted me and said, can you get on the phone right now? And I was like, yeah. And she said, the vice president just did a podcast today and she just asked us to find her more. Oh, can you record her on Friday? So you had three days, two Like days, one and a half days. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, and it's live, by the way. Oh, and it's going to be in front of a live audience. I was <laughs> like, okay, okay. So we, you know, talked about what the contours of the conversation would be, what they wanted to get out of it, what I needed to get out of it to make it work with my show. Mm-hmm. We're on the phone for about 45 minutes, and I was like, okay, that sounds great. Okay, so I guess tomorrow I'll travel to... I'll get my travel together. And she said, okay, great. We'll see you in Minnesota. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't, I don't live in Minnesota and neither do you. She was like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. This is part of our tour. This is hilarious. The conversations in Minnesota. And okay. I was like, oh, okay. So I'll Book see a you in Minnesota. I'll fly to Minnesota tomorrow. So I did. And that's co- about freedom. That's that freedom right that's there. That's freedom to control my time. I was like, we're clear. I was like, we're getting a babysitter. We're yep. clearing the schedule. Yep. Um, and so moving into execution mode, like at a very quick pace, is something I'm used to doing from I, both being on live TV and working on campaigns. So it just like switched on this part of my brain mm-hmm. that went into execution mode. Like there's no room for emotions. I can execute with a clear head. And I was like, yes, this is it. Fortunately, everybody that works for me, I've hired off of political campaigns. So they were able to- They had to prep you. So they were like, okay, we can do this. Like they're used to that same kind of thing. And then it was once we got on the ground and I was like, okay, this feels good. This feels like I know how to do this. There were two moments that really over, that I felt like, okay, my emotions are starting to overwhelm me. Don't let them overwhelm me. One was once we landed, we were there that morning. I asked, they forwarded me- um, the press advisory that had gone to the press, the White House press pool. And I assumed that, that I was one of, you know, many events that she was flying to Minnesota for. I was the only event she flew to Minnesota for. So why Minnesota? Um, it was a swing had... state right before the election. Okay, okay, okay. It makes sense, makes sense. So she wanted to do a little presentation there. Yeah, so it was like to get the press out and try to get people engaged wow. to, turn, to turn that out. So, you know, having been on the political side, I know the stakes of moving your principal to a swing state right before an election. Like, you only do it with the highest possible stakes. Yeah. And I was like, shit. And, I mean, the the operation to move the vice president in 36 hours takes so many people. 
And I was like, oh my God. That was something I wish I probably wouldn't have wanted to know before. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Then I felt overwhelmed. Yeah. I was like, okay, I could accept this when I was one of, you know, like six events that she's doing. Yeah, this was expensive. But I am the event. <laughs> yeah. Like the stakes are high. Like I cannot blank out. Like I cannot Good get nervous. Good for you. So then I thought, okay, okay, calm it down. I got it, I got Did it. Did you wear an it. earpiece or anything? Or No, no. Just little note cards or maybe nothing. Uh, little note cards, but like I couldn't really look at them because right. we were live on stage yeah. and I had to keep the flow going. It's hard. So through the whole thing, I was like, stay calm, breathe, stay calm. I was okay. And then I had met her. I talked to her in the green room beforehand. We were okay. I was about, and so I was going to be on stage with the, with the Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, but she had to come late. She couldn't come to the green room beforehand because she was officiating a wedding. And the stage manners, like she goes into her earpiece and she's like, okay, okay, we're pulling back, we're pulling back. Uh, the vice president wants to clutch with you and the lieutenant governor. She wants, she wants a minute on the side with you. And I was like, okay, we're pulling back, we're pulling back. And so we, so we go off to the side and it, she hadn't spoken to the lieutenant governor yet. So she wanted to chat with the three of us. So the three of us are standing there and I'm like, okay, this is cool, this is cool. And the lieutenant governor basically gets nervous and looks at the vice president and is like, vice president, I want to thank the lieutenant governor is the only, I think she's one of maybe the only, if not one of two um, Native American elected officials in the country. And so she was like, Vice, Madam Vice President, I want to thank you for everything you've done on maternal, on Native health and maternal mortality. Thank you so much. Like, this is the thing she wanted to get across. Right. And she was like, yes, yes, yes. And then the lieutenant governor just silent, clammed up. And so me being like an Upper West Side Jew, I was like, so now we kibitz. Yeah. Like now we just chat. So now I'm just like keeping the conversation going and like chit chatting with Kamala Harris. With Kamala Harris and the and the Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor of, of Minnesota. Oh my God. And in my head I'm like I had like it's this thought. Were you like, so how about them giants? Or like what did you Yeah, say? I was like, oh, like what are yeah, like what are we watching? Love your these shirt. days? Yeah. Like are we all into succession? Or like what are we watching? Like Oh my God, I would have done the same thing. I was like, the weather here is amazing for Minnesota. Like I'm j i am I can't even remember what I was what I said. I would have done the same. But I just remember this thought passing in my head, thinking to myself, I am the only person who should not be in this conversation right now, and I'm driving it. But I feel <laughs> so the opposite. I actually, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was going to say that you're like the perfect person to interview her at that moment in time because you know exactly what her angle is and what she needs to get done. If somebody like myself was to be interviewing her, it'd be a nightmare, you know? Like, <laughs> that's unqualified. You are the perfect person to do this because you are also relatable. So the people that were that she needed the attention from, they're gonna understand you. They're gonna like you. They're gonna gravitate towards you, and they're gonna, you're gonna get them to like her. So I think that you were a great pick. Well, you know what was so funny is that you guys may have seen this. It went viral on Twitter. It was when she brought out the Venn diagram. I believe I saw this. You saw I that. I believe I saw so this. So that yes. was in our interview. Wow. And the, her staff had told me they're like, she's so hot on this Venn diagram. Like we really want you to ask about it. And I was like. Oh, I mean, okay, sure. Like, we'll work it in. We'll get to the Venn diagram. I had not realized that she was so hot on it that she had a literal physical sign of a Venn diagram printed out that she pulled out. And I was like, oh, it's a Venn diagram. It's a real thing. It's a real Venn diagram. And it turns out Twitter responded to it with the same amount of surprise that I did on stage. It has been so nice to catch up with you and to get to know you. And 
it has been very inspirational for me to listen to your show. And, you know, I'm just stealing a couple things every, every week, you know, just taking, <laughs> putting them in my bag, but no, truly like for me as a person, I've pivoted a couple of times in my life. I used to be a professional dancer, did the pivot, went into my career that I'm in now. And I feel like I'm constantly pivoting. I mean, I still am in my career, but this was a pivot as well. So it's just so nice to see people that have had successful careers in all, in, I mean, you were in politics, right? To then go, because sometimes people say, oh my God, you're doing a podcast? Like, what do you mean you're doing a podcast? Like, Paula, come on. Like, everybody has a podcast. But, like, you had a real ass job, you know? A real ass job. And you are doing a podcast and you are taking it as just as serious as you were taking your job in politics. So for somebody like me, it feels like just so validating to see someone like you on this journey. And podcasts are freaking cool, people, okay? So one day you're going to see, we're going to have our own little shows. We're going to be on TV. We got this thing on lock. So thank you for inspiring me and just keep doing what you're doing. Your show is fabulous and I cannot wait to continue listening and watching and thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. And everybody, please make sure you listen to She Pivots and new episodes come out every Wednesday. And Follow on Instagram and it's at She Pivots, right? At She Pivots the podcast. Follow her on YouTube. She's on YouTube. Is it at She Pivots? Yep. She Pivots. Is there anywhere else we need to be following you? I mean, on Twitter, but I think it's a sort of a cesspool. So. Okay. And go and go see Shucked. <laughs> go see Shucked. Go now. see Shucked. We got to make some money. Honey. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again so much. And thank you all for listening. Bye. Uh-huh. Thanks for listening to World's Your Oyster. If you love what you're listening to, be sure to like, rate, and review this episode wherever you listen to your podcast. And follow us on Instagram at World's Your Oyster. And share this episode with a friend. We'd really appreciate it. Bye bye.